Says, how are you all doing? Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder of Vent. As you may know by now, each pod I check in with a very special guest, with Anatta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I'm really looking forward to this episode as I'm chatting with one old friend and former work colleague, but also the first set of male twins on the pod. They are identical twins too. Connor and Lewis Smart are originally from Plymouth. Me and Connor worked together at a political think tank many moons ago when we were both idealistic interns trying to make our way in the world. Connor is quite anti-social media, so me and him lost touch for a few years whilst he retreated back to a purer and simpler life in Lincoln, free of as, as much technological distractions as he could manage without becoming a hermit although he came pretty close to being a hermit, to be honest. Lewis, on the other hand, works in public affairs, and the two are very much their own men with contrasting philosophies, values, and ideas about life. But they do sound quite similar, to be honest. In this episode, we talk about how they grew up together as twins, why they are thankful their parents allowed them to explore and forge themselves as their own unique individuals. With Lewis's mental health, we discuss how he developed himself as an individual and learning to strive ahead in life without Connor to rely on for support. We also talk about why he found that empowering once he'd adjusted. We also talk about how he views the next stage of his life as we close in on our 30s, we're all the same age, and the person he wants to be. Does he want to continue with the corporate identity he has now? And in his words, what is the fullest expression of myself now? For Connor, he was one of the very first writers for Vent. His article was entitled, What Happens After We Talk? Making Sure Our Words on Mental Health Lead to Actions Towards a Healthier Life. That's quite a mouthful. I wish I had made him cut it down when he wrote it originally. In this article, Connor talked about going to the funeral of a close friend who had taken his own life. We explore the grief he experienced in that article, what has helped him manage and overcome the hurdles of life, and how what we as men can do to improve and live as healthy lives as possible. We finished the pod by talking about mine and Connor's friendship, how we instantly clicked all those years ago as we were on opposite ends of the introvert-extrovert spectrum, carrying a Christmas tree through West London, which we were asked to do, the Connor correctional curve and what that is, and a whole heap of philosophical discussions weaved throughout with a mental health lens. So this is how my conversation with Connor and Lewis went. Connor, Lewis, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Many blessings to you chaps. I'm using that as it's a favourite ad-lib of yours, Connor. How are we boys? How are we doing? How are we good, sir? Good, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Excited to be here. Excellent. Very good. Well, we had, I basically had a laughing fit before we started this pod, so um, I'm presuming I'm going to laugh a lot during this pod, but hopefully it's going to be a lot of learnings for the guests as well. Hopefully a lot of learnings for the listeners. So I'm going to say it's been a whirlwind romance from me feeling the urge to message you, Lewis, about an idea for the pod mm. and then actually doing well, this pod. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I've only ever met you once in real life, so I've uh, and it was a, a middling impression. Uh, middling, I say, but uh, it's <laughs> no. I was uh, Connor spoke very highly of you during your internships. Um, and uh, I'm sure that embarrassed you a lot, Connor, you, but, uh, to say that. I've embarrassed many times in my life, but um, I think showing you out to people, Freddie, as my friend, was probably one of the highlights. <laughs> 
but also a great joy as well. Embarrassment and great joy. They go hand in hand with us, really, I think. I think that's probably a good, accurate reflection of my life, to be honest, mate. <laughs> Embarrassment and joy. So there we go. <laughs> uh, right, before I lose complete control of this podcast, before it's even started, are we ready to start the show, boys? Go for it. Dig in. We are indeed. I want to talk about your mental health journeys to begin the pod, lads. But before that, I want to explore this unique childhood you had growing up as identical twins. So tell me about this early life in Plymouth and why you, Lewis, grew up wanting sleeves on jackets. (laughs) Not having sleeves on jackets. jackets. My notes has failed me. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, yeah, we're identical twins. We were born on the 26th of July, 1993, uh, in the great heyday of Pax Americana. I think if people meet us, we're very similar still in a lot of ways, but we've grown to be very different in others. And it's, that's been interesting for us uh, as, a, as twins, I think, to kind of self-reflect on. And that's been a journey since 1993. So for me, it's been, yeah, when you look back on it, actually, it is a very unique journey. I think it's for those who aren't twins, and that's the, the broad majority of, of humanity, they can experience what it's like to have a brother or a sister, which is in itself special. But to go through life as a twin is extraordinarily unique in a positive sense, but also can have its drawbacks. And I think we'll probably go on and, and talk about some of that uh, in, a, in a second. But I'd say being a twin is, in the first part of my life, was the bedrock of my identity uh, and psychology. And then gradually, and I think as again, as we'll talk about in a bit more, well, luckily, and it's been through perseverance and effort and a bit of self-reflection, you, you, you have to individuate as an individual, mm. as a twin, because the risks are that you can kind of be subsumed in that corporate identity of being a twin. And both, and I'll bring Connor in, in a minute, because I'm sure we both have, as a twin, it can be very daunting being an individual, because we were both quite shy at a young age. And I think Connor can say that. We were both quite shy and reserved. So yeah, it's been a long journey. I'm sure we'll talk about particular instances, but uh, you know, I think it's been. Luckily, we I think we've come out on the positive mm. end of it so far. It's a very, it's a very unique worldview to have, and especially as you're both mm. boys, so you're the same sex. You're not identical twins and boy and girl. I knew a couple of sets of twins when I was growing up, and some of them were able to forge their own individual identities, and some of them became this. Borg sort of hive mind where they were both acting the same, dressing the same. You couldn't really tell which one was which. So it became very confusing for other people. You both didn't suffer the same fate as those. Are you happy about that? And how did you forge your own sense of individuality with regards to your mental health, Connor? I think from the outside, people see twins as things that they see in science experiments. They do the whole sort of King's College study, (laughs) you know, the environmental factors and how they're brought up. And I think the interesting thing for us, for me especially, is seeing how the nature-nurture thing has played out and I could see it happening myself. So I could see that we both brought up the same way through parents and family, but then due to us moving apart and living in different circumstances and both on the economic and sort of social side of things, it's been interesting for me the last few years especially to see how Lewis has changed, how I've changed, and then what that means for our collective identity as a as a Borg hive mind. It's, it's been very interesting. You've got a tash and a goatee, for one thing. <laughs> well, again, it's, it's these little differences. You know, like Lewis is clean shaven. I've opted for a bit of facial hair. And for me, seeing that play out in life has been quite meaningful 
on an emotional level, I guess, as well, and also on a spiritual level, and also for our sort of, you know, our sort of identities. And there's almost, as I sort of wrote before, there's almost been a sort of role reversal in many ways, in that I started off as a younger person being quite confident and extroverted. And as the years have gone on, that sort of role reversal has, has occurred where Lewis is now more extroverted and I'm slightly more introverted. And I think for me, in the last few years, in terms of mental health and sort of mental positioning, when you have this intimate personal relationship with someone that's completely unique, trying to sort of figure out that role reversal, why it's occurred, and sort of now incorporating it into a new identity has been quite challenging in some ways. And maybe more for me going the sort of introverted route, and maybe less so for Lewis having the more extroverted characteristic. But yeah, I don't know what Lewis feels mm. about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when we were probably mm. eight to 11. And I remember being quite terrified mm. of you for yeah. a few years. It was in Stysen, I think. And it was, again, it wasn't terrified. As in you, were, you were quite the, the stern one. Mm. You were quite the active one. I mean, you were very, I mean, you put on a few pounds now, bless you. But you were very athletic back in the day. And I can't believe that. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. He had a high metabolism. But when he was like 11, 12, 13, he had an eight pack, ready. He was as skinny as a rake. And mm. I used to be the puppy fat I had a little bit of puppy fat and used to have a little bit of fat on me and I, I struggled with that you know I was going down the the cold garage where we used to live in Plymouth every day when I was probably 14 15 16 to try and lose that fat because I just couldn't get it and and now I'm I've lost a lot of weight I'm doing a lot of sports cycling running all that stuff Connor's right there has been a role reversal but it's not necessarily mm. negative you know as Connor says I'm the more extroverted one now but we're still you know, our second name is Smart. We're still smarts. I'm not extroverted as in a party animal. <laughs> I am. I go out there and do more stuff, but I'm, I'm still not massively loud or, you know, exuberant. I, I definitely find my own identity within myself and like that self-reflection. So we both share that same characteristic. It's just different degrees are emphasised now. And, you know, and I think for Connor, that's probably what he may say is, you know, the last few years, how that's been for him and maybe reconciling himself to that change and that perspective is, is three events from our sort of shared childhood years that stand out to me Lewis, to sort of exemplify what you just said was one mm. when we started we asked our father who's a former royal marine to set up an exercise regime for us we're about 11 i think weren't we at the time that's the most you thing i've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> it was quite different at the time for sure and father said all right let's see how many push-ups you can do so we started off and i think i achieved about 17 push-ups it was pretty good, you know, for not having regularly done them. In one set, In one set right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Probably do that 17 yeah. about now, to be honest. <laughs> and Lewis did, I think it was about seven or eight, wasn't it? And I remember you just sort of like, seven sort eight, of broke yeah. down crying at the time. You cried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and, I, and I sensed I like, no, as you said, you weren't intimidated by me, but I think you could sense that in some ways I had advanced in some ways. Like, I think physically. And yeah. then another one was when we went to the doctors to sort yeah. of an annual checkup. We were roughly the same age, I think, maybe a tiny bit younger. And the doctor said that you were you know technically overweight. Hmm. Oh yeah, he put me on the he put me on the scales like a like a prize fish or something. You know, like prize And I just saw him <laughs> messing around with it, and it just went to the opposite side. Yeah, and I was like, oh, and again, bugger. like I'm, you broke down I'm crying not, I'm again. Obese. And the last one was when we went to the dentist. Uh, but you know, most teenagers getting all our teeth sorted out, and I just normal braces. And I remember you sitting in there in the hmm. chair, you know, your little puppy fat, and the dentist actually saying to you, "You're dentally retarded." Mm -hmm. he used those exact words wow this is on pc language back then well exactly oh, no. yeah well mm. it's, a, it's a medical term oh yeah yeah, yeah it was a medical yeah. term in terms of you know, no, but your teeth were pretty funky weren't they at the time uh, <laughs> yeah you did and I, I struggled, it's only you know? now looking back yeah. really on 
And again, this is why I sort of raised what I did earlier in terms of from, I think, about the age of, I don't know, 15, 16, maybe, you overcame all those things and you caught up to some degree with myself. Mm. And I think then from that point onwards, I did struggle a bit to sort of deal with that, that equality of character and capability. And I think then I saw Lewis sort of using that as a springboard in his development to become on a very sort of capable, articulate, confident, and, and in more ways extroverted person than I was at the time. And I think when you have these two poles, there's always a balancing act. So I think when Lewis became that sort of more active personality, I counterbalanced a little bit and became a bit more passive. And in some ways, I became a bit more emotional as well in, on a sort of introverted level. I guess... When you're a single child, though, you, you always have that. You're always doing that balancing act with society because you've got no one else to rely upon. Whereas I think when me and Lewis had each other to rely upon, we had this own internal balancing act going on. Balance of power, if you will, you know, international relations graduates. Mm. And that's quite a unique thing for us to deal with, I think. Lewis, you described being a twin as a cosmic experience off air. Can you unpack that for me? Yeah, I can. It makes me sound like a right. <laughs> bugger isn't it um, just a massive bloviating bugger but it's an orientation in life so that's what i mean by it's cosmic it's like i mean that's what connor was just ending on there it's like for us we only ever know what it's like as being a twin so as connor said like we have our own internal dynamic going on you know as we're growing up you know when we're in our formative Peugeotian stages as, as, as small children and then it goes into early teens and then middle teens and late teens like so for us, that's our cosmic thing going on. It's like it's our our own internal dynamic that no one really you perceive us on the outside externally as weird science experiment twins, you know, as, as society does. And people just called us the twins at school. You know, it was a corporate identity we were given. But within that, we're orientated and there's benefits to it. Survival you know, we, is one, I imagine. Well, yeah, we didn't have the pressure. Like, again, we were quite popular at school, but we weren't popular because we were, you know, the cool kids. It's just because I think we were just quite authentic. But our authenticity was allowed because we were twins, because we had strength in numbers. <laughs> we had four fists, whereas anyone else just had two. You know, we could immediately bring four fists to any conflict. So that helped us, I think, in terms of that. But as Connor said and alluded to, like, for us, it's interesting to look at, you know, you, Freddie, just because you're an interesting chap. But you have your own cosmic thing going on as well. You're an individual. As Connor said, you have to go into a school mm. by yourself. You have to go into a society by yourself. And I had three siblings as well. None I, of them I, went to my school. So there's another thing. Yeah. And, you know, so how you, and I think you may have talked about this previously on your podcast, but your own individual relationship to like that self-reflection. So I see Connor being really sporty and physical and I balance off that. But for you as an individual, you look at, I guess, uh, maybe a, a school field of football footballers at school and that is a larger imposition. Like, and you also have to recalibrate. So I think what twins go through is not totally dissimilar. It's just a much more incubated form of social relation and, and the way it reacts mentally. Yeah, and I, and I think playing on what Lewis just said there about the whole sort of twin identity within school, um, and I, I sort of was consciously aware of it at the time, as twins, we were a sort of an identity, a group corporate identity. And we almost, in a sense, belonged to our year group because we were the only twins within our year group. And as we were sort of talking before, Freddie, mm -hmm. twins can be quite territorial with that identity because mm -hmm. we had other twins in our school in different years. And even sort of walking past them, like it wouldn't be, it would be territorial in a sense. It's like, well, we're the twins of this school. There's a pecking order amongst twins in school. 
<laughs> so that was a very strange thing. And we never really did anything active with it. It was never like we confronted these other twins. It was always like I would see them walking as a pair. You wanted to be unique. You wanted to be seen as unique. Well, I guess, yeah, yeah it's that yeah. striving to be unique. It's, yeah, we wanted to have that own individual twin identity. We didn't want any other sort of conflicting other twin identities to sort of impose themselves on us. And it's very interesting. Yeah, because we risked, mm. if we weren't twins, then we risked having to do what single children mm. like yourself really would have to do. You know, you'd have to develop it within the combat of great social identity in school, which is, you know, Trauma. for a lot of people, it's, it's hard. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, what would we have been? So, yeah, Connor's right. It was imposed on us a little bit, but we certainly probably took it up for ease, ideation, I think, in that sense. And it was, again, then I think probably, and Connor might be able to pitch him, but probably 13 to 15, I'd say we started then trying to develop mm. individuality, maybe 16 later. It's like, that's where it really took off. I remember watching, uh, it was around that time I watched a TV program, it was on twins, and it absolutely terrified me. It really terrified me. It was following these twins who were like... Oh, I remember watching that. That was weird. It yeah. was weird. There was two women, two female twins, and there was other ones. And like, they were, they were sleeping in the same bed together. They were... I mean, it was like they would share the same food and meal. I remember that consciously terrified me. And I think that's kind of where, luckily, we started then. And circumstances helped, I think, getting girlfriends and pursuing our own intellectual pursuits in certain different ways kind of helped. And then that started to, I think, push us into our own individuality. So, yeah, it's been it's been quite a journey. I would say it's over. I think we're in a, a new phase. I think mean, once a twin, always a twin. And you will be until, sadly, one of us passes this earth. But when one of us does, and, you know, it could be me, it could be Connor, obviously, that will be a real tough thing to take because, you know, it's a breakdown of your cosmos in that sense. It's probably, I would say it's even worse than losing a parent or a spouse for a normal person in that sense. Like, it's it's going to be fundamentally shattering, but may you rest in peace. You know? He's not it's dead yet. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I, I'm sure Connor's thought about it. Like, you know, I've been with him since nine months before I came out of the womb. Well, eight months. Seven months, we were, yeah. no, seven months, because we were two months premature, I think. You know, when you've gone from sharing a womb to everything in life to today, <clears> you know, it's a real cosmic identity and, and connection. So, you know, but you do get on with it, obviously. You know, you've got taxes to pay. But, you know, we'll see what happens in the fullness of time. Lewis, I want to talk about your individual mental health journey now so connor can put himself yeah. on mute or potentially go get a hot cross bun or maybe a cup of tea <laughs> tell me about the lewis we meet in your teenage years and whether looking back you had any early mental health experiences that's the question i always ask to every guest hmm. i'd say my early teenage years were actually quite i don't want to use the word mediocre i wasn't anything special I was, I've always been quite optimistic. People notice that. And I think the same about Connor in a weird way. It's like, even though we are quite pessimistic about society and all that, like individually we're quite optimistic. So I've always been quite a happy, optimistic chap. Um, that was quite normal. I always had a penchant for history and English at school, played a bit of sports, did rugby and stuff like that. So I was always, I always did a bit of everything, but I wasn't really special. In terms of my mental health, I think, again, as we alluded to earlier, I did struggle probably with my bits of my body, essentially. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of like puppy fat, residual puppy fat on my teeth and, and stuff like that. So it was never, uh, I, I think I struggled with that a bit, but I, I've never, I was never overwhelmed mm. by it in that sense. And I think as I alluded to with the going down to the garage every day and, you know, I remember like going down and the iron bars being freezing on my hands. It was in winter and just trying to lift these weights and stuff. 
And I think that's where my mental health, I've always, luckily, for some reason, I'm quite self-reflective. And I, I think we'll talk about that with the group of friends I have. We, you know, I call it my church in that sense. But I've always seen, if there's a mental health issue, I, I've always seen it as a as a kind of a happiness issue. And I'm not talking about happiness as in just momentary dopamine kind of experience. I, I put happiness, I think, in the broader term of a more philosophical happiness, kind of mm. fulfillment, you know, and it's like, well, if I'm not fulfilled in terms of how I look, and this is where I think it gets a little bit bogged down. It's like, I think we now criticize sometimes the fact that, oh, you shouldn't feel bad about the way you look. And it's like, well, that's not necessarily helpful in some ways. It's like, there are some things that may be the problem of yourself. The fact that if you are, for me, I, you know, I believe in a healthy body. You know, I believe in physical regime and, and physical fitness. I was just bloody lazy. <laughs> I reflected that that wasn't making me happy. So I reflect on it and use my willpower. I think that's probably where I came through throughout 15, 16, 17 to, to reform myself, to reshape myself in that sense. And that's how I approached the kind of issues I had. And if I was inarticulate, you know, I'd read speeches from the great people of history and I'd practice reading out loud. I think Connor could probably come back on this. He had a, a terrible experience in philosophy <laughs> and ethics where we were reading in class. Uh, I mean, he got it. It's only fair, yes. So I'm going to point this out. <laughs> yeah, he was reading out loud from a book and he lost his breath and he kept on going, even though he couldn't breathe. And it turned into some sort of like, <laughs> and it sounded just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I thought, again, Connor and like myself, he took it to like, right, I need to practice reading speeches and practice reading aloud. Because like, that made me unhappy feeling that way, you know? And it, and it is, you know, there is, or oh, gosh, shame. No one, you know, I mean, everyone else forgot about it after that, you know, the, the class ended. But for Connor, that was a moment where he had to reflect and go, look, I don't like the way that turned out. I'm going to, reorientate and reshape and move forward and I think that's a good way to sum up my kind of mental health journey it's been about throughout my teen years it's been about it was about development identifying an issue and then reshaping and reorientating myself and then to build mm. on it you know and again I, I, and I know there's a difference between that and people who suffer serious mental health issues and you know mental illness whether it's body dysmorphia or, you know, depression or, or stuff like that, I think there's a difference. I'm lucky that I've never gone towards or had that deep ingrained issue, but I've always had that normal issue, I think, of like, here's my mental health, and I, but I've always tried to take a positive, willful approach to it. And maybe it's worked, maybe it hasn't, but that's, I think, kind of sums up my, my mental right. health journey. You said after this point, you became the modern incantation of Lewis. So was that self-actualization or mm. a step into a career as a magician? <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, that's a good point. No, it's definitely the modern Lewis. Uh, I tried learning from card tricks and my hands are just too clumsy <laughs> to do anything. The career of magic was not ordained for me. Yeah, I'd say the modern incantation. And, it, you know, and it sounds very you know, there's a risk of solipsism here and subjectivism and kind of ideational whimsy. It's not that. I'm quite traditional. I'm not going to change and suddenly become, you know, uh, a Woodstock attendee and attend concerts and take light drugs. I'd see it very much actually more of a, there's a block of marble and I've been chipping away at it, you know, and trying to form that person. My modern incantation, I say, is very stable. There's always little bits to chip away and improve on to refine me mm. as a character. You got involved in 
politics and political campaigns in your early 20s. Now, we're not going to bore the listeners with those <laughs> campaigns, but what happened no, was please. you found yourself without Connor for one of the first main mm. times in your life and you didn't have that support mm. pillar. So how did that initially feel and what changed in you during this time? Well, do you know what? It actually felt good because I realised, again, it's like by putting myself out there, I chipped off another bit of the marble and it was like, I think it uncovered, uncovered much more of myself for me. So it did feel good. It was like, well, this isn't because of a result of being a twin. You're not just maybe a little bit popular at school because you're a twin. It was actually, well, you're doing well or you're doing this well because you're Lewis. So I think that's what the campaign, you know, it was knocking on hundreds of doors and, and Colin did this as well with me, but it was more me, I'd say. You know, you would knock on the door and talk to people for sometimes 20, 25 minutes. And some people said they really liked talking to you. Yeah, some, to be fair, shut the door in your face and told one told me that uh, he thought I was excrement. But the positive always outweighed the negative. So yeah, I really had to put myself out there. It was post-university, so finding work was tough, uh, as we've all gone through. And it was a great thing to really push myself out there as an individual. I, so I found a large part of now myself in that campaign in terms of like beliefs, the ability to communicate with people and the confidence uh, to actually be myself rather than having Connor with me there like he was at a school party or, or school lesson or, or school rugby. I was mm. on my own. And, you know, that's where the individual aspect came, came through, I'd say. The final part of your journey is where we arrive at now in modern life, Lewis. So mm. you're doing well in your career. You've got a dog, a partner. You're the definition of settled, I would say, or close to it. <laughs> so who's the Lewis we meet now? Yeah. I'd say he's much more of an individual than a twin now. I don't say that in the sense of mine and Connor's connection is any less potent. We talk and text nearly every day still. It's just that I'm far more of an individual, I'd say, and I've maybe tipped the scales that way. And I still want to do stuff with my twin. And, you know, it depends on, you know, Connor's in, in Lincoln and we're separated by hundreds of miles and tracks. Of well done, Connor. Train well done. So it's hard to see each other. Yeah, he got away. He got away. But yes, I want to do stuff with Connor. At the same time, if my twin isn't there and that our interests don't align, then I am happy to go and pursue and be myself now and to get what I desire and to achieve what I want to achieve. And I'm quite firm in that. At the moment, I kind of know what I want and I know that will change. Like, I think, Going, I'm going into my 30s in a year or so. Like, I think my 30s will be different from my 20s. I want it to be. But I think I'm confident to, if I need to be alone to achieve that, I'll, I'll mm. go and achieve that. The final question I want to ask is that you've often asked yourself in the last year or so, what's the fullest mm. expression of me in a room now? So do you have an answer for that yet? <sighs> fullest expression of me in a room. I'd say I'm, again, I'm quite chatty in a certain sense though I, I do struggle with small talk i struggle Both with like, do, and I, I, I like <laughs> yeah i like banter and i like conversation in fact i had my work party the other day and i'd you know, I had to go alone like previously on my teenagers going to a party by myself with 100 people would have been unthinkable but i went i don't care anymore but i still like the music was so loud <laughs> but i still had a good time but it, it wasn't my sort of it wasn't rap man no because, so you know no, yeah, well, yeah, but I couldn't, I couldn't have the banterish conversation with people because we couldn't quite frankly hear yeah. each other, Freddie, and like we couldn't have any decent conversations because like, I had Dizzy Rascal playing in my head at like a hundred volume. Like, yeah, I still struggle with some of that, but I'm confident in that. Like, I know I don't want to be that sort of person. So the fullest expression is me being comfortable with what I know I'm uncomfortable with and accepting it 
and just being able to be Lewis and what I know I'm good at, which is I'm optimistic, I can foster a good team, I'm quite insightful and I, and I give other people a chance to speak. Wow. Or not. Yeah, I know that may not come across, but you know, I've learned a lot through my work over the last few years of how I manage a team and, and stuff like that. So I know where I'm strong and I know where I'm weak. And I think as long as I keep on that bearing, and I think Connor's a good person to keep me on that line. Yeah, I think I'm living the fullest expression of myself at this mm. point, I think. Lewis, you can relax now. So Connor, I'm going to turn to you and your uh, indie guitarist haircut and moustache and goatee. <laughs> so same question as I asked Lewis. Tell me about early life, teenage years, and if you had any early mental health experiences and who's the Connor we meet here? Well, I wasn't aiming for the indie guitarist look, but uh, if that's what has turned out, Freddie, then it's not too bad, shall we say. Could have been worse. To be honest, I don't want to sort of retread the ground I did earlier, but I think probably one of the biggest things for me was, as we sort of say, I was very physical at a young age. For me, it was about following in my father's footsteps of joining the Royal Marines. And I was pretty much totally dedicated to that path from the age of about, as I say, 13 till about 18 years old and everything for my existence let's say my cosmic experience as Lewis has put it was being around and joining Royal Marines and fulfilling that archetype of the warrior so everything was directed towards that I was giving literally no thought to anything else so I applied for a Royal Marines officer scholarship at the age of 17 so I have to go through all the sort of basic selection process that any normal recruit would and I thought, you know, this this is it. This is my chance. I'm going to do this and I'm going to fulfill my destiny that I've chosen. So I pushed really hard. And looking back, I didn't realize at the time how hard I was pushing myself. I literally pushed myself to exhaustion. Looking back, my body was still developing and my psychology was still developing. But because I had sort of grew up on the Royal Marines ethos of you can do anything if you put your mind to it, which is in some ways true. But when you're that age... It's not a useful statement, in my opinion, because you can't do anything, absolutely anything that you put your mind to. You know, there are limits. You've got to look after your health and you've got to look after your psychological health, your physical health. There's so much involved in actually becoming fit that I just didn't realize you need to do at that age. You actually do need to rest, <laughs> believe it or not. You need to eat right. You need to train right. Because I thought I just need to do everything with the utmost intensity and then I will be fit as a fiddle to become a Royal Marines officer. And basically, it went the complete opposite way. And I literally pushed myself to destruction because I started running. I couldn't run half a mile without collapsing. I couldn't do 20 push-ups at the end of it because I would just collapse because I was just so exhausted. My dad, actually, he drove me to the training course at Limston for three days, I think it was. And long story short is that I failed on the physical aspect of it. I was literally just dead. I was dead on my feet. And my whole cosmic world and experience and direction came crumbling down because I was literally, that was all I wanted to do. So that sort of pushed me away from that way of wanting to direct myself in life. And, and I think because Lewis was not as committed as I was at the time, and he was sort of just coping with the world in a sense of just learning to manage with it at that age, whereas I was on this one course and now my course was gone and I had to learn how to adapt to a world without a unidirectional purpose. So for me, looking back now, and I, I, you know, it's only really talking about it now and reflecting on it that I realised how pivotal it was for my life because then it was just pretty much school, having fun and going to university. 
and I think Lewis will back this up, university was never something our family have done really. And it was never something I'd really even consciously thought about, even in A-levels. Our school literally marched us all into a classroom at a bunch of computers and said, here, fill, fill out your UCAS applications. Here's a booklet. Have a look what course you want to do. And I was like, about six months ago, I was literally wanting to go into the Marines and that was my future. Now I'm looking at a booklet deciding what I want to study for the next three years. We both eventually settled on international relations, which was a combination of history, politics and society and sociology, which we both enjoyed reading. So for me, that was pivotal. I don't think, I, yeah, that was a real pivotal time in my life. And, and I think, to be honest, echoes of that still reverberate through to me to today. And I don't know if we're going to touch upon this later on, or you're going to ask me some further questions on this. But to sum up, I had a unidirectional purpose, which Lewis maybe lacked at that time. It came crashing down for me. And the time Lewis has spent sort of just getting by in the world and learning those skills, I picked up later than him. And I think that definitely carries through to today. Well, I want to talk about the Vent article you wrote all those years ago in November 2017, Oof. mate. You were, if not the first, then one of the first authors who wrote for me. So tell me why you wanted to write it and the issues you explored in it. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. You know, it was it was such a privilege to be able to write for you. You know, and I mean that because you know we were good friends within six months of our internship, and you know, asking someone to write something for you, and especially for such a sort of personal thing, is it's it's an honour in a sense, and it is a privilege because you're asking someone to bear themselves for you in a sense, and to, you know, do this collaborative effort. So it, I really enjoyed being one of the first to write for that, and it stemmed off the back of a pretty good friend of mine from school who I'd grown up with for a number of years committed suicide at the age of about I think it was 21 I think and for me it was a very odd experience luckily for us um, and I'm sure Lewis will say this both all our grandparents are still alive pretty much we've never really had to experience the death of a close relative so for me it was pretty much my first experience of loss and I remember feeling pretty numb at the time and I didn't really feel anything in particular we lost touch for like a year or two like we only saw each other infrequently but we were pretty close in A-levels and throughout school and he committed suicide sadly and I remember, I think it was a few weeks, maybe a week or two after I learned of his loss. I was in the garage, that famous cold garage, working out. And I just broke down crying. I just was just tears just came flooding out of me. And I, I didn't really know why at the time. And then it was about maybe a day or two later that I realized it was actually letting loose that energy, that grieving energy that I had just repressed since learning upon his death. So for me, it was confusing. It was quite confusing having those experiences and those emotions and trying to process them. When you asked me to write an article for, for Vent, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to sort of encapsulate and sort of write down what I experienced. And and I think what I learned from that was talking about mental health is a great first step. And I never really talked about it with anyone at the time. And then taking action upon that is, is really important. You know, you've got to sort of take action upon what you've spoken about. You've got to move forward. You've got to set up steps in order to sort of deal with things you can't just talk talking is great and it's a great first step but if it's not acted upon it won't actually manifest itself and you will not see any like results from that or any growth so that's sort of what i wrote about in that article and, it, and it's something that you know i try to live in my daily experience now is talk reflect and then act and that was a great article for me to write i think at the end of the article you reflect on his death and you say I often find myself thinking of him and how he would be feeling if he were alive today. I also have a strange sense of a debt to him as his decision often reminds me not to take life for granted and to think that at any time 
my time could be up. He has helped me not to be too hard on myself and to sometimes be okay with feeling concerned or uneasy, but to seek advice when I need it. Is that statement still true today? Yeah, I think it is. It most definitely probably is. Yeah, it's weird actually sort of reading it out to me. It's <laughs> five years ago. It's it's weird hearing myself write something like that to a certain degree. I'm trying to process from my own standpoint now, five years later, what it means to me now. That's, that's quite a lot to do on a sort of podcast and I probably won't do it justice, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, like, I don't know. I wish I was there for him more. And again, I'm not saying like, it's, it's, it's not my responsibility. Like, you know, life is precious. Getting older, you know, I've had low points in my life, not as low as my friends and sadly, but we only get one chance. We only get one go. And, and this is the problem of good and evil. And, you know, the God debate is like, without great sadness and great evil, we can't know what great good and great happiness is. And that's what I've taken away from from this lesson and from that experience of grief that life just can't be bubbles and rainbows and ice creams. You've got to have the rough with the smooth and you experience both. You'll get the best of both and the worst of both. That sort of motivates me to keep going, like going like the pendulum swings and you will have a low. I have hope now that through perseverance, there will be highs and there will be good times to come. When I went back and read that article, Mm. you were, so much further ahead of me in our mental health development or mental health journey at that time, Mm. almost to the point when I published it, I maybe didn't even understand some of the points you were making because I wasn't in that mind space of talking is good, now needs to be followed up by action, which is what I've done in the Mm. last six years. And something that Lewis said off air was this idea of the Connor correctional curve, where basically, well, why don't you explain what that means? <laughs> it's hard to explain it, Freddie, without coming off as a complete pompous git. And I don't want to. That, like, <laughs> I think growing up, and again, this is the balancing act. Lewis is a bit more of an optimist, I think. He finds a way to deal with things and he cracks on. Whereas I'm more of a cynic or a pessimist. And it's not towards debilitating. Always I always have been, yeah. probably to some extent, yeah. And I think that might stem from my failure at the Royal Marines thing all those years ago. Like, I invested so much in something and it came crashing down. I have a certain pessimism about things. Or maybe it's realism, I don't know. Realism makes me sound more worldly and wiser. But it's probably just pessimism. Like, technology, such society, economics. I've taken off my rose-tinted glasses. And I really sort of evaluate stuff on a very granular level. And I think some of that, I was very much into the Stoics growing up. One of their psychological tricks to dispel fear and anxiety and about things is analyze them, bring them apart. You know, Marcus Aurelius has a, has a good stuff about this. And I guess I've done that subconsciously. So for me, when social media came along and was at its height, I was like, nah, it's not good. It's not as great as everyone thinks it is. The pathologies and the weaknesses within it are going to come out soon and everyone's going to see. And I deleted social media at quite a young age and I've never been on it since. And Lewis has recently followed me in doing that. And there's other things as well. There's, there's other things about society and economics. I think crypto is one of them as well recently, isn't it, Lewis? The Connor Correctional Curve, crypto. Lewis got very into crypto. And I was like, this is this is a complete waste of time and effort. This is gambling. This, this is yeah. basically <laughs> online gambling. And yeah, and so I never got into it. I think I invested 20 pounds in like Adder or something, whatever it was. And Lewis had like seven financial apps on his phone at the time. <laughs> 
And but Lewis now sees crypto for what it is. Like, you know, I think he's still got money in it, bless him. He's still hoping for that elusive pot of gold. But the common correctional curve to sum up is <laughs> basically my realism and pessimism about things bears out eventually about the reality of it all. I don't like the gloss and the shine of things, and I and I try to see things for what they are. And Lewis, not to sound derogatory, catches up with that view eventually. I've caught up with it eventually as well. Well, yeah, and it's not from a position of look how great I am or look how wise I am. It's just a case of we're all manipulated in society today by advertising and capitalism to think a certain way to buy crap we don't need, basically. So for me, I just think I try to look past that gloss and shine as much as I can. And that shines through with my sort of anti-capitalist <laughs> inclinations these days, which we'll get onto later, but I'm sure, I think yeah. Lewis has something to say here. I'd say that, and I've just made a green tea so I could wet the whistle. Um, sorry, I, my absence. The tea bag actually oh, disaster. the kettle, so it was, it was a bit of a mess. And I've come back and Connor's talking about the Connor correction of curve theory, which is why no one invites him <laughs> to dinner parties, quite frankly. But yeah, I think Connor is right. I think on a lot of stuff, we live in a, yeah, you know, a societal structure that I think has brought in a lot of pernicious elements i mean again we can talk about this more broadly in a minute maybe because again as we mentioned at the start mental health for me is a happiness concept you know and then it's a and that's broadly a philosophical concept and i think a lot of that's the basis of western philosophical living has been eroded over the last hundred years but i think that's where connor and i struggle in our relationship today is connor's a very he is a very good diagnostician he can diagnose the ills and all of that with society very well the problem is is proscribing a new way of living you know and, and a new way of happiness and i think we're actually in a very nietzschean world i think you have to will values in, in modern western liberal society you have to will happiness a lot more and it's tough christ it's tough like jordan peterson talks about this a lot he's like to form your own value system and live it out every day is tough and he gives the example which is a bit derided at times but before you want to change the world and anything big Try making your bed every day. Not everyone can do that, you know, consistently and with effort. And it's like, well, if we can't do that sort of thing by ourselves, how do we will a happier life across society? And that's where I think I take a bit of thing with Connor. It's like, well, I, yeah, you're very good at diagnosing it. And I think Connor is. But in terms of now, well, how should an individual in Soho and an individual in Lincoln and an individual in Plymouth and an individual in the Southeast and, and in East London, my friend, it's like, how do we all, how should we go and live our lives to be happier and for our mental health to be better if we're taking mental health in the broader sphere? That's why I think Connor may not have answers. And I think he'll be humble enough to admit there are, he doesn't have the answer for that, although he may have a few opinions on it. But that's a big question. I think that's a lot of where the debate really should be a lot of the time is, well, what is the model of individual happiness? Because they discussed it 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece. And we seem to have just ignore it today because it's, it's very Nietzschean. Everyone should just go and live their own little postmodern happiness and little identity group, which is fine. It can bring some happiness, but... We are a humanity, we are a society. And without that broader meta-narrative, I think it, it's a recipe for people sinking into individual solipsism and maybe illness. See, I think health. I was listening to you earlier, Lewis, believe it or not. And I was listening to your example yeah. of the block of marble. And I think this this sort of sums up, you've always had strained analogies, in my opinion, and metaphors. <laughs> you've always strained for them. Yeah, but um, it was actually quite an apt one, so I'm quite impressed. And I think that sort of sums up our different life philosophies now, or our sort of different problems. You say about chipping away at the marble until, you know, something comes of it, or, you know, 
you're going to chip away until you get that maybe St. David, you know, sort of statue. For me, I'm someone who needs to know what I'm crafting before I can start chipping. I struggle with just chipping away and mm. seeing what comes of it. I need to have a final good, you know, that the, you know, cancel Aquinas's summon Bonham in mind before I get to that. And for me, the chipping away is the libido dominandi, the, the, the will to power. And it's a way that's got both good and bad. But as you say, are you just aimlessly chipping away, hoping something will come out of it? And I think, you know, I think Freddie wants to come in there. Yeah, I'd say two things in response to that. And I think mean, Freddie wants to come in. Yes, I, again, I, I think you're right to a large degree. I think it is the way it is because of what I said, because society doesn't have a model for us all to be. So that's the kind of the only current society is really there. Yeah, current society is that there is no, you know, the old Christian, Judeo-Christian idea of what you should be doing in your life is gone. You know, for good or ill, I'm not even making a value judgment on that. I'm kind of trying to do an objective sense. It's gone. For a young man in the 21st century, what do I do? The idea of the nation has been dissipated. So what do I do? There's a billion different postmodern identities I could be a part of. So which one do I do? So for me, it's like, well, I'm trying to uncover that, but not in a chaotic sense of, you know, just drifting from identity to identity. As I said, I already know a lot of what I am, the foundation of the statue, so to speak. I'm just trying to uncover the rest. But I think from what you said, I think you're afraid to lose the control, which I think is what you felt after the Marines. So you very much want a model where it's very much, you know, the endpoint, so you can get there without chaos without that sort of intermediate sphere of a loss of control now it's the opposite i I actually i I want to give up control because i realize i can't control it there's no way i can balance the universe just on myself i can't do it that's what i've been trying to do for the last five six years No, that's what i'm saying no no and i didn't mean control in a negative sense i mean like the way you live is quite controlled you know you have a very regular routine you know you, you kind of want to settle in a house in Lincoln and, and, and a job that, you know, is, is controlled and it doesn't impinge on, you know, you, you don't want to work till 10 o'clock at night doing a crypto finance product, do you? Well, no, you what's, I mean? like, what's the point? That's the life in the Southeast to an extent. What's, what's the much point? More variable. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, that's a, diff- that's a different issue. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm talking about with control. I think you want to have your own thing within your control and forget about the plethora of billions of identities that you could be out there in society. That's what I think a lot of people in London still do. Again, for some, it works. I think for it does have a lot of negative consequences. But you have abandoned that exploration of a billion different postmodern identities in London for a, a more kind of smaller scale and controlled. Again, not controlled might not even be the right word, but a more settled structure. Yeah, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm conscious of time, guys. So I'm going to have to mm. try and wrap up Connor's section before we move on of to course, the next sorry, topic. Yeah. We've done the fluid discussion here, so that's fine. I've got a couple more questions for you, Connor. So just on the article, mm. when we finish it, my favorite line of it is this. You say, there is no right answer to what it means to be a man. And you can't make everyone happy with how you view your own identity as a male. Part of this was letting go and in a sense, not caring what other people thought, while at the same time, respecting their point of view and engaging politely with them where you agreed and disagreed. Do you think we've lost that in the conversation today, even though you were saying it almost five years ago? Obviously, mate, when you read it back to me, I don't, I don't even recognise myself writing it to some extent. It's, it's so odd hearing it read back to you. <laughs> but like, I think for me now, my view is twofold. There's the immature masculine and then there's the mature masculine. And I'm trying to aim as much as I can for the mature masculine. And that's just that, you know, the virtues of when you procreate with a woman and you have children, you know, and how you interact with your friends. And just by the mere sort of biological fact that I am a man gives me something to sort of 
as an archetype to actualize. And I think for me, I'm just be a good person, be a creative, life-affirming, encouraging, optimistic person that you can be for your friends, your family, and your community. That is pretty much for me now mm. what, you know, and again, this also applies to the feminine. You know, Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst, you know, he said within every person, there is the animus and the anima. There is masculine and feminine. There always has been. For me, it's about giving space to both the anima and the animus to bring out their best qualities. Because within the traditional feminine qualities, there are virtues and there are within the masculine. It's about having them in balance and having them in, in accord with each other to bring out the fullest expression of the individual. It's no bad thing to have some feminine traits. You know, I mean, this is what men have got to sort of be comfortable with. It's we get showed these things of like big muscular men, you know, like Thor and Superman, Henry Cavill and Chris Hemsworth. Like those are now the sort of archetypal alpha male types. And we don't need three billion alpha males. Society would absolutely implode upon itself. There needs to be a pecking order of masculinity. And again, you know, the alpha male type necessarily isn't the most conducive to a harmonious society. So for me, it's about just be comfortable with the balance of traits that you have and just try to make them as mature as possible now. And I don't know if that answers what I said, your question. Earlier, but... uh, uh, to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah, to yeah, a certain yeah. degree. The last point I wanted to ask you about, and the subtitle of this on my running order is fuck the system brackets kinder. And you've already touched on it a little bit already with moving to Lincolnshire and stuff. And I feel this pull you're having in your own head where in an ideal world, you want to be, you know, a full Amish type person living on a farm with a tractor, birthing sheep. But equally, you enjoy a lot of parts of modern life and you need to stay plugged into the matrix to some degree. Is that a fair assessment of the battle you're having? Oh, 100%. It's a sort of Manichaean battle between good and evil that's going on with me at the moment. And it's not just me. I think there is a huge desire within all of us. Our society has got far too complicated for its own good. Was mental health a problem in the 1800s or the 1700s? Like in, in the sense that we know it today. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to answer that question. A lot of the but, issues now weren't, but there was obviously some issues yeah. that we've tackled now that oh. were existing back then. I think that's probably I fair. mean, to be honest, you were struggling just to feed yourself by the end of the day, weren't you? So you had, you had bigger <laughs> yeah. problems to fry. You know, you got like bow legs and rickets. So for me, it's about, and as I say, be discerning. Get rid of the gloss. Lift the veil of what it is you're actually interacting with on a daily basis and, and decide what's healthy for you. And for me, that's a combination of going back to simpler times but also i need a computer to work i need a phone to call people you know we've got this podcast system here where we're having a great chat and i've got to learn to integrate those two things and be happy with them but society today and this is why i take issue with lewis's comfort or getting on with the will to power chipping away at the marble thing is that eventually you're going to keep chipping away at the marble until there's no marble left it will all just be chippings do you know what i mean and <laughs> Unless you've actually got something that you're aiming for at the end of it, you're not going to know how to chip, you know, to, to extend the metaphor even further. That's the tension that I have right now. It's about, it's an existential question of what's worth doing in life and what's worth aiming for. Because I don't want to be an Instagram famous person. I don't want to be a, a celebrity. I don't want to be a movie star. You know, I don't want to be any of those things. I just want to be a good husband, a good father, a good person, a good citizen, and... For me, that's drawing upon 2,000 years of the good book, the accumulated wisdom of 2,000 years of, for me, what the Christian religion at the moment. I haven't fully got in, like, converted or anything yet, but reading it, I see the wisdom that we're lacking in today's society. And that's, for me, I'm something, that's what I'm going to use to craft my marble block. Lewis, I know you're going to come in, but I want to reflect on both your journeys now because 
we need to crack on. <laughs> so first of all, yeah. for you, Connor, if you could go back and talk to the Connor who was striding out on his own in his own introverted way, the Connor who was just about to fail his examination into the Marines or the Connor who was processing the death of his friend mm. or maybe the Connor even contemplating moving out of London to Lincoln. What would you say to him knowing what you do now? Give up the dream of status striving in Western society today. It's not going to make you happy. Don't try to fill that hole with job titles and status. Go back to basics. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. Live simply and honestly. And at the end of that, maybe some happiness will come. And don't try to build the universe just upon your shoulders. You won't be able to do it. It's too much. You're not Atlas. No. You're a, you're a mere mortal. Yeah. That's the person I was thinking of, Atlas, when you're using those shoulders and holding the world on it analogy. Exactly. And to Lewis, if you could go back and talk to the 14-year-old Lewis who was forging his own individual identity, maybe the 18-year-old Lewis who was mm. developing himself or the Lewis who was perhaps not living in Connor's shadow, but maybe a bit jealous of him, what would you say to him mm. knowing what you do now? I'd probably say take some marble sculpting <laughs> lessons, to be honest, because you've crafted a, a quixotic individual. It's a tough one because I need time to really, I mean, this is a, one, I mean, this is a question and it's a great question, but everyone should ask themselves. And before I go on and answer this, just to quickly say, if you feel off what Connor said, like, and I think for the, the nature of this podcast, Connor and I have been very lucky that we have a very close collection of friends, which we kind of call our church, where we've been speaking about all of this since we were 17, 18 you know, we've had that church to, to go to. And my friends, if they listen to this, I'm sure I'll send them, they'll know who they are. But it's been an, of an invaluable help in this whole process of, of forming oneself and dealing with mental health, you know, because they lost the same friend that Connor did. I lost the same friend. You know, we all knew him and we've all gone through that grief. You know, and I do feel like in a lot of, again, I don't want to sound judgmental, but a lot, I think there's a, an unwillingness to speak like this. I think this is why what you're doing for it is, is such a good thing. Uh, is that it opens up the space for, especially men to a large degree, to, to start, you know, saying to one of their, their lab friends or, or even a female friend, you know, about this sort of stuff, because we're all bloody here and we're all going, Christ, what is this all about? And who am I? And what is society about? And I'm struggling. And you can only not struggle and, and move on from the struggle by acknowledging it, as Connor said, talk, reflect and act. And I mean, that's a great thing on that. But to go back to it and answer your question directly and not to be a politician about it, I think what I've done, and because I've had that church and I self-reflect, I'm, I'm happy with the decisions I've made. I would say maybe not to worry as much because I think stress and worry are actually the biggest mental health problems. You know, I think they underlie a lot of the other stuff. So I would say just apart from the marble sculpting lesson, you know, just be a bit calmer and enjoy this this journey that you're on. And again, I'm aware that this is very individual and there's a wider, I think Connor talks about the scaling effect of that. But for Lewis, that's probably what I'd say. This is my favourite section of the podcast, Con, which is a little chat about our friendship. So Lewis has put himself on mute for most of this. Now, despite us only knowing each other for six months, all told, we still pretty much kept in touch by and large, even though you went offline and became a hermit. But I hadn't actually spoken to you for a good four to five years before this pre-pod call we did. And it really felt like we hadn't missed a beat, did it? So tell me how our I don't know, friendship blossom, maybe first impressions, and I'll tell you mine afterwards. I think the usual expression is time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? 
But and I think to modify that, time becomes in, inconceivably extended when you have a Freddie. Because for me, six months <laughs> together in that internship really, <laughs> really seemed like a, a sort of a lifetime of friendship condensed, like condensed milk, condensed down into like just six months. And it's not a long time. I've probably had milk in my fridge I've had longer than six months. And I think for, for me and you, it's opposites attract. Because I'm pretty reserved, generally. I'm pretty insular and pretty introverted occasionally. Like, Not that I can't be fun and extroverted, but I remember the first day I sat down at my desk and within a couple of hours, were behind me with your hands on my shoulders and just like, you just broke that boundary to me. And I was like, what on earth is this man doing? Can he not see what he's doing? But out of that, I think you actually... I'd never really encountered anyone like you before. And... For me, that was a blessing because <laughs> because when I did encounter it, it was a, such a great chap that it didn't seem like I wanted to be defensive about it. I just ran with it. And we had so many laughs. And as what, 21, 22, 21 year olds, I think it was. You were 20 maybe at the time. Being in like that, that, yeah, fit, I that was place 22, I at think. that time where you don't have too many responsibilities, you're not approaching 30 and you've got to get your life together. We just had fun and soaked up the experience. And it was a joy. It was a real joy for me. Yeah, mate. I think first impressions of you were, I already thought, bloody hell, I'm working with a load of poshos here. So I already felt, even though I'm middle class, I already felt like Del Boy when I walked in. <laughs> and then you came in with your posh accent. I thought, bloody hell, who's this geezer? And then I actually got to know you and A, found out you were pretty working class. Mm. And B, just not like a lot of the types that we worked with. So instantly I felt like we had like a really good connection. And like you said, I think the fact that I'm a 19.5 out of 10 extrovert or 119.5 out of 10 extrovert, depending on who you speak to. And you were quite introverted, but you know, like Shrek, when you peeled back the layers, you were pretty out there too. And you, you, you love to muck about just as much as I did. Does that mean you're so the donkey to my I Shrek? Think, yeah, I think we were a good combination. <laughs> Whoever was the funniest, I'll take that role. <laughs> yeah, Shrek's a very interesting, interesting metaphor. Even more interesting than Lewis's marble one, I think. But you, you're completely right. I have a guard up generally to begin with because I like to get to know people. Yeah. And I think being the twins, because we had that insular relationship, I needed time to get to know someone because I've just spent... 21 years knowing this chap on this call with me and i know him pretty much and i need out. no time <laughs> but yeah you, you you destroyed that paradigm completely like you needed what less than 24 hours and you you were accepted you were fully accepted freddie and we just went from there really didn't we we just in a very serious place we had a very non-serious attitude towards things not that we were immature and we didn't do things that were required but we just had fun and I think, to be honest, mm. in a society where we all take ourselves far too seriously these days, the ability to like not necessarily care about what people think about you is such a such a blessing. And that's what I think I realized about you. You just didn't really yeah. care too much about how I saw you. <laughs> and you just let go. And yeah, thank, <laughs> That took a long time to get to, though, mate. I, de I definitely... Really? I definitely cared a lot more when I was in school, but yeah, when I got to, oh, right, oh yeah, mate, yeah. when I got to adulthood, I didn't mm. care because I didn't feel like people were judging me. And if they did judge me, I didn't care. But when I was in school, I care. I used to modify myself all the time to try and fit into what mm. people thought of me. But yeah, I appreciate you saying that, mate, because I'd always got the, oh, you're so loud and all this stuff, 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 all in school. When mm. I got to adulthood and people used to say it to me, I genuinely didn't care because I'm like, well, I'm not going to change for you. So either get used to me or fuck off. Yes. Yes. And I got used to you, you know, very quickly. And I think to some extent, actually, 
I'd moved up from Plymouth up to London and I hadn't made any friends at that time. We were living in a shared house in Bromley at the time, me and my partner. And I was pretty lonely, I guess. My twin was off doing his own thing in London. And I guess you were sort of like a substitute brother to some extent, actually, thinking back on it now. And you fulfilled that role that I needed in order to relax and feel safe. Not in a sort of, you know, weird way, but like I just felt safe and like I could be myself around you. And I, I, I like to think you could feel safe and be yourself yeah. around me as well. And I think at that time, we both needed that, I think. Yeah, man, 100%. Can you tell the listeners about how we loved doing Star Wars memes and stuff like that? That was one of my favourite things. I mean, a meme breaks down barriers and walls, doesn't it? There's nothing like a freshly baked meme in which to, you know, endear yourself to somebody creatively and sort of organically. And, you know, we're, we're pretty nerdy in that sense. You know, we love Lord, we grew up with Lord of the Rings, we grew up with Star Wars, both very meme-worthy series in their own rights, but at the same time, spectacular pieces of film work. And we use that, I think, as a way of getting to know each other because mm. we had these shared cultural motifs and sort of references that we... I think that just reinforced our relationship of mutual understanding about things. You know, if, if you can laugh at and enjoy a Palpatine quote, I'm probably going to enjoy your company yourself. Um, and the fact that like I've, as I say, I'm pretty reserved. and I would never really do these quotes in person. They would be saved just for the meme. But to see you sort of unleash yourself with thespian curiosity and engagement into these memes in actual reenactment was, it was lovely. You know, it was, it was lovely. And that, again, you chipped away at my guard and yeah. And you broke through, you know, and at the end was a soft, buttery core of Connor. And yeah, that's, <laughs> we had a wonderful time. It was a wonderful experience. I, I hate London now. I've had some pretty yeah. Yeah, experiences there. But I look back on those six months with, with unbridled joy. So thank mm. you, Freddie. There's a story that I always tell, mate, to people outside of our circle mm. Where we had a big work event on, and we had to get in at like seven a.m. in the morning, didn't we, mm. to get all of this work done to be able to go to that event in the evening. And I was basically falling asleep at my desk. Mm. I was so tired. And you made the request to our boss for me to try coffee for the first time, <laughs> and it was received with such trepidation that it actually needed a sign-off process. <laughs> So can you can you tell the listeners about that story and how I reacted to that espresso which I was given, which such a dangerous call. I'm going to be honest, it's a bit foggy in my brain. I think in some ways I've tried to repress it. <laughs> because for me, I've been drinking tea and coffee since I was, I don't know, probably two years old, probably. And to meet someone as energetic as you, who had never really drunk coffee, one, baffled the sort of logical part of my brain. But two, it was really interesting to see what would happen. And... It's a little bit foggy, but I can remember, I can remember you taking those first sips, and it was like putting what was it, water on the gremlins or something, isn't it? Is it the gremlins in the films? <laughs> yeah, to get water on them. <laughs> Not that you turned into this big hairy monster, <laughs> but like, yeah, I think a new Freddy was born, <laughs> like, a, 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 like ultra temporarily, like, you know, power level seven thousand from like um, Dragon Ball Z. You know, it's you know, like. <laughs> an aura lit up around you and yeah like i struggle like with energy levels sometimes i can get a bit lethargic and all those sort of things but the amount that you have in reserve is, is just incredible and the caffeine heightened that experience i think yeah i remember sitting at my desk and my hands started to shake mm. and i was like so wired and i was thinking how the hell do people drink this on a regular basis and I, my brain was going at like a thousand miles a minute 
It's a very surreal experience. I want to also talk about this Christmas tree mm. that we were asked to carry through West London. Yes. Do you want to tell listeners about that? Basically, we were there at this think tank from, what, July to December? And near the end of it, obviously, Something like Christmas that. was yep. coming along. And being the sort of lowly, lowly interns, we were asked to do the sort of the rough and tumble job of getting a Christmas tree. I think it was from Camden, wasn't it? We had to go to Camden. So we rocked <laughs> up. You know, I've never bought a Christmas tree in my my whole existence. And to rock up at this place with like 1,200 Christmas trees and a little cafe, I think we were called as well. There was a little cafe there, wasn't there? I think we actually had a coffee or something, a little bit of cake or something, like, like an old married coffee. We did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we... <laughs> so we had a coffee, we had our cake. And then we lugged home, we got this Christmas tree. And it was only then, I think, when we picked up the Christmas tree, we realised, how the hell are we going to get this back to the think tank, the building? <laughs> I thought, yeah, we're going to have to take the underground, aren't we? We're too poor to afford a taxi. So we basically lugged this Christmas tree down the escalators <laughs> to the deepest, darkest recesses of the London underground, had to like manoeuvre it onto the train, got a few quirky looks from people. And again, it was just one of those experiences that if you weren't there, I'd probably feel a bit weird and self-conscious doing it. But because you were there, you just made it fun. And I just I just enjoyed the experience. And, you know, you were the real Christmas tree for me, Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. That's the best line of this podcast, mate. I could probably write that on a card somewhere, couldn't we? You're my Christmas tree. So, yeah. And it was just, again, we just had fun. And, yeah. And it was slightly yeah. immature fun, which I'm usually quite reserved about. But there is a place for the immature mm. in life. You know, there is a place for that court jester. That's why they always had him in the medieval court. And I think for me, you brought that out and you, you put that in my life. And that was that was really good. Really good. I appreciate that, mate. On our final Christmas party, well, I say final, the only Christmas party we had, <laughs> yeah. I was given a T-shirt which said, Freddie says relax, which I still have, actually. I wear it to bed sometimes. <laughs> and you dutifully wore it mm. and nicked it off me. And it was so tight on you yes. that it almost it almost felt like a, like a Kevlar vest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have slightly different body sizes. And yeah. I wasn't hitting the gym as hard back you then. You weren't, no, no. Yeah, but I think with that, there was... You know, there was that imbalance and sort of, I guess what you say, you know, typical masculine trait of, you know, muscles and a bit more skinnier. But we didn't care. You know, we, we were just good friends. I would wear your shirt. It was no problem for me. It wasn't a case of, look how tight the shirt is on me. I'm so much more muscular than you. It was like, I just love the saying on the shirt and I want to wear it. <laughs> and you had no problem. You know, we, again, our guards were so lowered that we just we just interacted on a wonderful level. I hope I didn't stretch the shirt too much for you there. No, I mean, not at all. Before we talk about that final day that we had together, mm. there was a lot of really fun memories that we had having to do the AV for a lot of public events that we had there, didn't we? I mean, God knows what people have thought knowing what we were getting up to in that AV room. Nothing, obviously, untoward, just no. just mucking about, really. Yeah. But yeah, that was my some of my favourite times when we had to stay after work. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, you know, I'm pretty much a technological hermit and I'm pretty crap with technology. But I've never had so much fun with tech I didn't understand as I did with you in that room. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just again it was just a joy and i don't know what it is there's a bouncing off that we have that makes any situation just enjoyable and even on like really serious events where we probably should have been behaving more appropriately we would try spinning the camera around in the meeting room so that people would notice it wouldn't they you know we, like we would try and catch people's attention with a spinning camera which when you think about it isn't the best behavior we could have done but it's again it's yeah we just yeah we had fun, you know, and now we're in the life of real serious job responsibility. It was good to have that fun, I think, when we did. Because it, it yeah, would mate. be out of place now with the age that we are, I think, wouldn't it? 
Uh, and that's fine. You know, that, that's fine. You know, we, oh, we yeah, grow, 100%. we mature and, you know, we find suitable places for things. But yeah, we, we got it all out of a good six mm. months. I think. <laughs> yeah, 100%. As we parted for the final time as colleagues, I remember on our final day, you going in for the handshake and I offered the hug and I gave you like a full bear hug and then you mm. sent me a softy text afterwards going when you try and break for the final time with a, with a professional handshake and, the, and you go in for the hug that's the only bit that's the only thing I remember that really softy text you sent me oh wow I don't remember sending that text oh goodness you, I feel like you've recorded so much of my life already and, and and this is you know this is why I don't like technology but it, it sounds it sounds like us I don't recall the moment but it definitely sounds like something we did and secretly I probably didn't want to give you a hug as well but I, yeah, it's odd. As you said, we haven't talked for four or five years, which is a long time. And it's just like, we're back at those desks, sending each other memes. It's wonderful. Really. <laughs> it is wonderful. It is wonderful. <laughs> I like to think, mate, that we provided a lot of joy and bants to that organisation, mm. which who's to say, who's to say what it's like now, but I like to think it was a happier place when we were there. I think so. I think so, yeah. We were the Christmas trees, I think, for six months. And we brightened it up a little bit in our own way, I think. And that's all you can do in this world, you know? Especially today, when things are so bad, you've got to find some joy. You've really got to. And and I think that's a lesson you taught me, actually. Try and find the joy when we can. Yeah, just try and have a good balance. I mean, the fact that I was called the puppy in my own work team for the entirety of the time I was there, yeah. it says a lot, it does. to be honest. And at the end of the day, everyone wants a puppy. So it's, you know, it's only a good thing. I want to bring Lewis back in now for this final discussion before we move on to the mental health chat. So, Connor, you said something really interesting as an ad lib off air that I want you both to kind of talk about if we can. You said we're all administrators now. What did you mean by that? Oh, goodness. That went from a very fun, fun conversation to a more serious one. I have to switch my brains here. Bang, segue. Yeah, that's a segue. Um, as I sort of said, not joining the Marines and making my way in, you know, commas, the civilian world. I've done about eight jobs since leaving university, which isn't particularly a very good thing. But because now if you're in the service economy or most jobs today, you're going to be behind a computer. You're going to be behind a square, a backlit square with little squares underneath your fingertips and the nature of work today for me is something I'm struggling with to enjoy and define purpose in because regardless of your job title you're going to be processing information that's what the economy runs on today more or less I know Lewis has his own opinions on this so it's probably good to draw him in right now but I don't I don't disagree it's um again it's like it's very much it is the way it is you know and i think yeah there is a wider issue of what's happening with artificial intelligence and automation and technology like i think it's in the next 20 to 30 years you know it's probably going to change again like the, i think i saw a stat where we actually think coders now to be good and earn a lot of money you need to code but ai will actually take a lot of the coding jobs in 10 to 20 years so it's you know it's an incredibly shifting economy and i think that's also actually what feeds into a lot of people's mental health is the precarious uh, you know and to kind of bring connor's point in here somewhat superficial nature of the economy you know it's very information driven it's very and it, you know it's not just information that stays here you know we do one thing on a computer the next day it's another press release or it's another bit of information like there's a lot of information and not a lot of knowledge uh, and i mean that's what policymakers, you know as well society is so tense right now because we're running it speeds that the human mind hasn't ever had to contend with one of the great 
periods of history I love to read about and reading a book about now is you know the, the American Civil War and and that time it would take you know the Telegraph actually speed sped up things a lot but usually I think you'd have weeks to make a decision or at least days you know you'd have that time to frame the economy and decisions and the military whereas we're seeing what's going on in Ukraine now and everything's just moving at lightning speed you know this war has only been going on four and a half weeks you know it feels so much longer but like everything's happening so quick you know information on twitter like this is the most documented war and today this morning there have been war crimes uh, i've seen some horrific photos you know that's the way the world operates and i do get what connor's saying but it, it is part of the way things are and uh, you know you could go back connor individually could go and maybe live an amish life and there's a good channel four documentary right now on on the simple life with these brits go and live an amish life and it's fascinating and a part of me wants to do that as well but it's like i unfortunately we are in a an emerging techno core to kind of there's a book i read where it's like that and that is the way it is i don't necessarily agree with it mon frere like it's not something i'm saying i actively want but in order to live a life and I, and in my job again I, I see the some of the superficial aspects of it but i also see i'm trying to do as much as i can with what meaning there is in it because you know and this is why i think connor again connor's got a great diagnosis of it but unless you turn us into some sort of north korean agrarian you know economy with 63 million people engaged in agriculture and kind of artisanal production. It is the way it is. So for me, again, it's like, yeah, I think eventually I may get to, get to the point where I'm like, wow, this is all. And I think a lot of people are, they want to get out of the rat race and they want a, a simpler life. So I'm by no means disagreeing with Connor, but I, I can't agree or disagree with any proscription he has for it. So yeah, that's- I, the, I think the North Korean nomenclatoria was a bit unfair, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Well, I think it's more sort of eighteenth century life. sort of American libertarianism, <laughs> which is well. I mean, let's look at the problems of eighteenth-century American, you know, libertarianism. You know, agrarian economy built on some pretty evil stuff. In terms oh of yeah, I'm not saying um, there's there's no also, such thing as human yeah. utopias. They're, they're not achievable. No, to some that's degree, what we're we are on the path to a techno-capitalist dystopia. I think we're already seeing the signs of it to some yes, extent, yeah. and I think it's going to yeah. get worse. And I think the effect that that has on people's mental health is more profound than we realise. But we're starting to see it and we're starting to notice it. But this is the problem I have with you, Lewis. And, you know, I understand completely where you're coming from. You're going to keep chipping away at the marble block until you just end up with chippings. I want to have something in mind that I want to chip away for. I want to craft something beautiful at the end. And the only way to do that, in my opinion, is to stop chipping and to take thought and reflection. And to build yourself a, a universal paradigm that's completely opposite. Not opposite, but it's different from what we're all doing now. It's got to be. It has to be done because we're just going to end up dying at the end of this. And all we've done is moved information from one point to another. If I could go back now before I, I, university, I, I would take up a yeah. course in carpentry or plumbing or something. like. You when you're say, Again, it's going to sound like an excuse, but when you've got bills to pay and you've got stuff to do, like, I could. I could. But... Well, that's where I go <coughs> with you. It's like you this is the problem with the Britain. We're an island. There's not a lot of land available. Like, if you want to be able to be self-sufficient, you've got to be able to buy land, and you're looking at half a mil, at least. And mm. when you're not wealthy, that's yeah. a problem. Yeah. Because at the moment, we're all people living inside our little cubicles, yeah. and everything is outsourced. We we have no power over our own lives. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't disagree with that. Again, but I mean, to talk about your previous, there is meaning and happiness. Even in that, again, it's like, you know, it's very kind of Victor Frankl logotherapy. You find meaning in, in like, again, we must be careful here. Like, 
there are problems with our modern economy, but it is in no way North Korea. There are a lot of people that suffer huge deprivation across the globe who suffer, you know, and, and we don't have the opportunity that we we have to shape ourselves and to take opportunity. But shape you yourself know, into what? Well, into what, again, it, it does get very Nietzschean, but it's to shape yourself and who are you, and not to sound horribly, but who are you to say that someone who wants to be a corporate lawyer shouldn't be a corporate lawyer? The broad framework of what that means for their family, and for their, you know, their life and their happiness is a question. I'm sure actually that's what we should be opening up. We should be like, well, why are you being a corporate lawyer? I think that's what this type of thing is, what we've been talking about is actually we should as a society be more authentic. And also, like if you're in a corporate lawyer position or if you're in a meaningless or, you know, somewhat superficial profession, accept it, you know, and be honest about it. I think that honesty helps us to enjoy the, except, the other except parts you're doing of it, like superficial. the camaraderie. Like except the you're doing something superficial. Is that your recommendation? Well, but again, it's like, no, no, there's been superficiality since ancient Greek times. And, as and super, superficiality had its place. It had its place. Even after, like, thespians back in ancient Grecian and medieval times were looked down upon. They were a lower class of people. Now, actors are the highest yeah. echelons of power in our society. And that's a, or cu cultural power, anyway. I would also say that my yeah, authenticity didn't always get me in the best places. <laughs> it wasn't always well received. No, <laughs> But that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying it's always a balancing act. Whereas I think Connor, our, our granddad, who is very authentic, but he's, he lives in a cottage in the middle of nowhere where he can kind of act out his authenticity to his full degree because he doesn't interact with society. Like, unless that's the model we're going for, humans will always have to compromise in terms of the way they act in society. And, society, and it's always a compromise. Uh, you know, and I think it's the degree of compromise and the, the role for individual authenticity and the constraints of societal norms and superficiality. Unless, Connie, you're arguing it's either or, you know, I think, yeah, I, I take your point, we may be getting very superficial. We may be getting too much of society on the individual. I'm saying we should actually bring the individual back and say, look, be authentic, be accepting of where society is ridiculous and, you know, and, and, and have friends and open up the conversation about the struggles of modern life with friendships and, and, and your own church. So I'm not, I, I just don't think you can say it's either, you know, our granddad in the case of a cottage in the middle of nowhere and he's not connected. I just don't think you can apply. Well, usually, seven you know, people. people, well, I say our granddad, he would ideally have us living down the road or his family and friends. Like we're all geographically uprooted from our home locations. I know, Freddie, you still live where you sort of grew up, which is fantastic. But me and Lewis grew up in Plymouth. He lives in Surrey and I live in Lincolnshire. You know, our, our family, our family well, are scattered around. Like we're geologically disembedded from our own roots now. Lewis. Like to chase the I economic opportunities and the imbalances <laughs> in the economy. Like I'm well aware of where I live, but again, it's, but you're, again, it's a great diagnosis. Go back and live. No, in I'm, but it's 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 a fundamental thing. It's like unless Connor has a solution. Well, I'm working on it. I as I said, like it, the sad thing is, well, to, there you go. A lot the of, sad thing is to, all to simplify it. your life now. You need it's weird, but you need a lot of money for some reason. To be simpler, you need more money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's true. really sad, and it's something I'm trying to square <laughs> yeah. my head around at the moment. But at least Lewis, I know that I have the intention yeah. of trying to achieve it. Whereas as like I'm trying to shape that that end marble block into something that's beautiful. And I see you chipping away really successfully. You're a great chipper. Like you, I've always admired your ability to get your head down and crack on with things. But I worry that at the end, you're not going to leave much. That... Right. I'm going to give last words to you, Lewis. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to no, finish the pod before five o'clock. No, no, this is a perennial debate at the moment with no particular hmm. answer. And I think 
the ability to be humble and modest about the fact that we don't have answers is key here. But again, it's like in each regard, it's about opening up the space. And I think to be honest, and as I said, like I think the, the most important thing for a lot of males and females today is a lot of them don't even have this. They don't even have the discussion, you know, all the disagreement, all the, the passion and the forum to be able to do that. And I think even if it's just that itself, that would be a big help for the modern UK. We could say the modern West, but I think for the modern UK more generally. We've come to our final topic of conversation, boys, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, Connor, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? <laughs> wow, quick fire. Great start. Yeah, I know, yeah, bloody there. hell. Um, <laughs> I'm maturer in it and I can bring myself out of the issues that I have than I did at a younger age. So for me, it's about I can have a mature interaction with, I think they're existential problems existential questions for me now lewis i'd say settled um yeah settled with my mental health at the moment but i'm aware of where my kind of the foibles are within it yep. if that makes sense where the weaknesses are connor what age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health i think about one hour ago <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, but also being serious in the sense that you've made me think about things from a different perspective that I haven't really previously. So it's been something I've been aware of a long time, but for the last hour, it's, it's been quite acute. So, yeah. All right, that's, that's good, mate. There's, no, there's never a wrong age or right age. Yeah. Lewis, same question to you. Probably, I mean, in fact, it'd be the similar vein of Connor, but I would say eight or nine in terms of now that I really feed back on it and what I experience in terms of like being aware of my own image or my own fatness or, or something, that's when it probably, yeah, you probably then, yeah, that's probably when it started, but it's been a continual okay. process. And... Connor, what age were you when you had the first conversation about your mental health with someone? So who was it with? How did it go? And did it feel like on the one hand, a part of you had changed or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I think probably the age of 18 or 19. As Lewis says, we got a very small group of friends, which you know is our own little church. And we formed that little group studying philosophy and ethics at A-level. No, so probably 17, 18, sorry, 17 or 18. So for me, and we didn't, we didn't speak specifically about mental health, like, hey, here's my mental health, let's digest this. Like, again, it was the large questions of life and society and economy. Like, those things for me, like your mental, your mental, your brain interacts with those things and feeds off it for its own healthiness. So by talking about it, it really made me aware of life and its factors and its variables. If anything, I think it's made me too much of an overthinker to some extent, which has had its own negative impacts. But the price is worth paying for me. The, to be aware, the price is worth paying. Lewis, same question? Yeah, I'd probably say the same, actually. 16, 17, 18, that sort of age. And, I, and I'm conscious for your, your listeners, especially if they have the, um, the strength to listen to every single one of your podcasts, really. <laughs> no one's done that. Um, if they... <laughs> and again, I, I know there's probably a bit of a, maybe a caricature about mental health that, you know, to do, you sit with a psychologist and you know, you, you discuss that or you nowadays it's HR and mental health units in work again, which I know not necessarily a bad thing. I think, you know, hopefully Connor and I haven't come across as too abrasive or we, I think we just have a very singular model that we've gone through in terms of, as Connor said, and what we've intimated, there's a larger thing that we've had since 16, 17, 18, which was, uh, you know, our own church and our own ways to deal with those bigger questions. Cause again, I think it's more a broader philosophical thing of happiness rather than just 
mental health. And I think that's been our mode. So I'd say 16, 17, 18. And, you know, I hope, you know, that's um, of interest to, to some people listening and that it's not coming across as too egotistical or kind of, you know, or anything too brazen. Like, you know, it may not be for everyone, but that's when I'd say Connor and I both started talking about that. Connor, what triggers do you have that affect your mental health? So it could be things people might say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, a particular social environment. Not me. Don't no, say me, no, please. No, no, no. It's quite the opposite. It's uh, probably it's usually Lewis most of the time, to be fair. Usually <laughs> yeah. it's large social occasions for me. I'm, I'm a sort of group of two or three people. That's my happy place. Any more than that, and then I find you start to lose your own individuality. People will start accruing to a group identity and a sort of more shallower sense of themselves. So for me, I, I lose meaning in large group interactions. And I think and it, it's going to sound bad, but like Lewis's life is a bit of a trigger for me in the sense that... <laughs> in the sense that he is becoming you, the epitome of middle-class, corporate successful man, which is absolutely fine. Like Again, like I'm not disparaging him. I can see you going more red on the, on, as it's, you speak, I, mate. I'm trying to contain my fury. <laughs> But it's weird because being twins as well, as we elaborated earlier, we've got that connection. And to see those differences in our lives playing out now and our different conceptions of how to approach these issues, it does trigger me. Not in a a sort of bacchanalian frenzy, but like on a sort of personal and emotional level, it it is a trigger. It is a trigger and it's something (laughs) we're sorting out as we speak. It's something I take great pleasure in. I think you do. Lewis, same question to you about triggers. I've been thinking about this as Connor was... Speaking, I mean, probably a one-legged pigeon. It really just gets to me for some reason, like seeing a one-legged pigeon. Just so sad. Um, no, but I'm more serious. I'd say it's time to myself. If I, and my missus, my poor missus, she can attest that I am more extroverted than Connor. I am more social, but, and I'm, you know, work's quite intense at the moment. And I like to stay in shape. If I don't, <laughs> I need 45 minutes where, and I've got a new dog, so I love him a bit, but Christ, he's a, he's a dash hound, so he's just a little shit sometimes. But like, I need some time. If I don't get around about 45 minutes to an hour to myself a day, I start getting a little bit funny. I really start to struggle. That's when my introverted nature comes out. So as long as I get a bit of time to like read my book with a cup of tea, that's great. Otherwise, I will start with the, just the, I describe it to my missus. She's very, she's very practical. She's great. And she's pushed me out of my comfort zone a lot. But she's, I would say that she's trying to keep the forces of entropy at bay. But like, it's just, it's an impossible task because I've told her, but if I start getting into just that real practical life where I'm just doing the dishes, cleaning, doing work, I start to get triggered that mm. I haven't got space for myself. Connor, what tools and methods, on the other hand then, do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I think on the opposite spectrum to Lewis, I have a friend called Ethan who's more closely aligned to my outlook on life. So after I've got off having a talk with Lewis for an hour, I'll usually talk to Ethan at some point and sharing similar outlooks and having someone there who shares your concerns on stuff is comforting. And it, it makes me feel like I'm not going crazy. That, that like these are concerns that other people and friends of mine are having. So yeah, I talk. Me and Lewis, I'm sure as you know, are, are pretty good talkers and we've always enjoyed talking and that both brings problems. It's my greatest obstacle, Freddie, but it's also my greatest solution. <laughs> so yeah. I talk. I talk. The talking brings problems, but it also helps me solve my problems. Lewis, what tools do you use? <sighs> tools do I use? I would say, how, again, yeah, I'm lucky I have my friends. I would say they're the external tools. And not in a, in a just a end thing. They're, they're, they're deep friends and, and I love them to bits. But they're the external tools I use to actually 
my internal tool of self-reflection that voice in your head where you think about stuff and ruminate and you know and sometimes you worry i think sometimes you can over conceptualize and i think for a lot of listeners to this they may you know if they've got problems with mental health it may be a whole range of it. i'm starting to see a lot of it comes from the because i'm involved more in the london life now like it comes from the creating a, a structure in your mind of what you should be or what you should be doing or how you should look or how you should act to gain acceptance or whatever and i think that internal I've tried to squash that and just be, what do I authentically think myself? Because otherwise it induces anxiety because that structure you create in your head is not a tool. It's actually the thing that causes, I think, mental health problems because you're, you're setting up a structure that you can't reach. And then again, the question is, you shouldn't be reaching it. You should be true to yourself. And then again, you talk to your friends and externally, I talk to Connor and Ethan as well and, you know, and other friends. And, and then you kind of, you get to the, the place where, you're happy with yourself and, and happy with, with who you mm. truly are. I've got two questions left. So Connor, what is the best book or as I call it mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Oh goodness. If we had another hour, Freddie, uh, for me, I'm reading a book currently called the political. We've, we've been going for two hours already. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm reading a book at the moment called the political theology of Augustine Aquinas and Reinhold Niebuhr. And it's basically about Christian politics and Christian theology and how it relates to politics. And for me, it's answering a lot of questions about human society, the structures, how the individual interacts in those structures, the sort of sinfulness nature of man and how there's no such thing as a perfect utopia on earth. It's allowing me to, to think that it's okay for things not to be perfect and completely settled. It's given me that space to sort of think human society has been going on for the last five, 10,000 years it's in constant flux. It'll be okay. Everything changes. Everything passes. Let go a little bit. Um, and that's that's almost like a soothing balm of all of, like, you know, aloe on, on my brain. So, yeah, good book. Tough read, but good book. Lewis? Uh, Hunger Games. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, I've read, and, and Connor's also read, like, a lot about the great people of history, you know, and because of history, a lot of it's men, but there are incredibly great women as well that you can read about. And I think mean, that actually helps. And I'm reading Doris Kearns has got a great set of books on the Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt uh, and the way these men operated and how they became the leaders they did. And again, not everyone's destined to be a president. And of course, that's the case. But it's a great view into the psychological makeup of, of men and, and, and women who push. I think in actually reading a lot of those human stories, you know, of, of great men and women can actually help. Aristotle called it Aratheic ethics, where you set up in the virtue model, you know, of pe great people throughout history. And you've got to be careful, actually, the warriors that you can actually slide into feeling like you're not worthy of these people or will never reach them. But especially Theodore, who I've just read about in Abe, like Abe Lincoln came from grinding poverty. Like, I read this morning in the book, he was left by his father, his mother had died. He left Abe and his sister in a wood cabin in the middle of Illinois with not even a door or a bed in the house, like just a wooden shack for like six months. And how these people, and she goes, Doris Kern is a great writer, she goes into great psychological depth for these people and it's a real, real interesting kind of look at uh, the way these guys and women perceive, you know, a life worth living. Uh, and being happy with themselves in that sense and as one more question sorry Connor, i know you've got your hand up but we've got we've got to wrap up <laughs> so what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it 
I think perspective is key, as I sort of alluded to about this book I'm reading. There's nothing new under the sun. The experiences we have are universal human experiences. They've happened along tens and tens of generations of our forebears, and they will happen tens and tens of generations of those who follow us. It's okay not to be perfect. It's okay to have issues. It's okay to be wanting to strive for something more and not feel like you're fulfilled. You're always going to have it. It's always going to be there. You're a human being. Live to the fullest of the human being, which is having doubt. It is having questions. And enjoy and, and try to get some sort of satisfaction from being human in that regard. And Lewis? Yeah, I echo Connor there to a large extent. I, mean, I said this to two of my other friends at work at one point. Like, we're all fallible. None of us are as good looking as we think. None of us are the perfect spouse. None of us are the best work person. I think society needs to be a lot more humble and to accept. Although, yeah, I come off kind of kind of says I come off as confident and extrovert and that. I'm well aware of where I fall short, you know, and I'm I'm well aware of where I need to improve. And I think when we start being as a society more humble with ourselves and kind of more modest i think that will open up the space for people to accept that they're not gonna reach utopia they're not gonna reach some sort of chris hemsworth like figure and uh, with a combination of einstein intelligence you know it's and, and the charm of you know some i don't know smooth italian it's just the way it is and i think we have to accept that that will allow us to be at peace with ourselves but also allow us to be kinder to each other i hope that model where it comes from Connor can say it, would be, it can probably come from Christian charity and mercy. and But, it, you know, I think there maybe there is a more humanistic way to approach this. So I hope once we open up that space of modesty and humbleness, we can we can start being nicer to one another and, and hopefully just be a bit happier with each other. Connor Smart, Lewis Smart. Cheers, lads. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. It's been a barrel of laughs. There's been some ups. There's been some downs, but we've got through it. No, thoroughly enjoyable, good sir. Many blessings. Thank you for having us, Freddie. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thanks to my old workmate, Connor, and his brother, Lewis, for coming on for this bumper edition. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or write us a review. I'm dying to get a new one to help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. That is in our link tree across all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Okay.